What's good, podcast listeners? This is Jabir, and I'm so excited to present episode 20 of the Raw Talk podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. The conversation you're about to listen to is with one of my favorite people on the planet, who also happens to be my PI and mentor, Dr. McIntyre Burnham, a.k.a. Mac. Dr. Burnham is a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto and currently co-directs a province-wide epilepsy research program called Eplink. Shout out to Eplink. That's funded by the Ontario Brain Institute. Apart from that, he's an opera singer and avid gardener. In fact, our conversation took place in his beautiful garden, which adds a cozy element to the whole thing. In this episode, we cover a ton of stuff. A lot of specifics about epilepsy and a lot of stories, including his training in longevity, the reason he got into science, what he's most known for, how he navigated going from basic scientist to translational researcher, and much, much more. You see, I've known Mac for three and a half years now, and what you'll realize very quickly is how chill our vibe is. He's very easy to talk to, and when we got around to his supervisory style, I took a moment to share my experience in the lab and surprised him with a few questions and comments of my own. And to everybody listening and following, first off, thank you so much, but continue to touch base with us. Let us know what you liked, what you want more of, and even what you want less of. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. We're there at Raw Talk Podcast, and we're here to listen. Keep the love coming, and you know, we'll keep dishing out that Raw Talk. All right, let's hear from Mac. So, Dr. Burnham, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. First and foremost, I just want to thank you for letting me take up your morning. I know how much you protect this time. <laughs> cool fact, a lot of my emails to Mac are around 6 to 7 in the morning because I know he'll be awake and I know he'll be reading them, so it's something we can talk about during our meetings. Number two, thank you for inviting me to your home. It's a lot less noisier than in the lab. So you want to describe the scene right now for us? Well, it's a fairly big backyard. It's a typical Don Mills bungalow, but we have an extended backyard because we back onto the Don Valley and the Don Valley Parkway. So we have quite a large garden. Last time I was here was the annual garden party, which is a tradition. Yeah. And you were just telling me that is coming very, very soon. Day after tomorrow. Well, actually Saturday. And it's tradition. When did the tradition start? Years ago. Uh, I've always been a singer as my avocation. And I had a group of uh, other friends that like singing, so once a year we sing for our friends at this annual garden party. I brag to my friends and colleagues that you are an opera singer. Well, um, I'd actually like to start off by asking because we've been scheduling this since I've been back from France, and I know you're you're busy um, working through several theses, including my own. Yep. And on top of the many things you got going on as the director of a research program, does it get any easier? <laughs> over time. Um, thinking back over time, uh, science writing gets easier and planning experiments gets easy. Uh, getting money never gets easier. 
So that's the one thing that doesn't change. <laughs> and uh, and how do you explain the longevity? Uh, well, uh, as a researcher or as a person? Well, both, because you've been in research for how long? 30? Oh, God five? knows. Um, I got my Ph.D. in 1971. Uh, so since then, uh, longevity in research, well, I like it. Uh, I'm interested in it. Uh, I think it's important. A longevity as a person, um, I think I would blame on high blood pressure meds these days. Uh, both my parents were dead by my age, mm -hmm. um, but uh, my generation's living longer and functioning better, and I think it's because of the high blood pressure meds that cut out the strokes and heart attacks. Fair. Well, it gives me something to look forward to. Yeah, well, you guys will live forever. <laughs> Getting to just where it all started and how you got here, just a snapshot on what brought you into Toronto, got you interested in epilepsy research and your progression as a scientist, if you can touch up on some milestones, inflection points over the course of your uh, personal and professional development. Sure. Going way back, I didn't know I wanted to be a biologist. I was interested in um, what, what we'd probably call social anthropology or how people live in groups, how primates live in groups. So when I went to school, I thought that I would be interested in sociology or social psychology. I took a course in sociology and that finished sociology. And then I took a course in social psychology called personality. And six weeks in, I still didn't know what I was studying. And so I moved <laughs> over toward experimental psychology and then toward neurological or biological psychology. And that's where I've stuck ever since. You were born where? I was born in Chicago, 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 Illinois. And you find yourself in Canada. When did that happen? Uh, when I was a, an undergraduate, I read an article by D.O. Hebb, uh, the great McGill psychologist, and I said I want to work with him. So I came up to Canada, and I did work with him. And how was that? It was great. He was a fine man, a uh, wonderful guy. And then where did uh, epilepsy come into the picture? It was more or less an accident. I was in graduate school for quite a while. I was really struggling. Uh, and uh, finally, one of my friends, Dr. Ronald Racine, who was in that days just my buddy, uh, said, why don't you try this new epilepsy model I'm working on, the kindling model. So I did, and I've been doing it ever since. The thing about this model is it works. Can you describe the kindling model a bit for us? kindling model is uh, a model in which you anesthetize usually a rat, implant an electrode in uh, very often a limbic structure uh, and then after the rat has healed up you stimulate once a day trigger a focal epileptic discharge uh, and in time with repetition that discharge begins to spread more and more in the brain to secondarily generalize until it begins to involve motor structures and then you get a motor convulsion. And this uh, kindling effect, well, I'll touch upon it, specific details in a bit, but one question that I often get, and I'm sure you've faced over, the, over several years, is does it occur in humans, this kindling effect? Well, if it doesn't occur in humans, they're the only animals that don't kindle. Every known animal uh, that's been tried experimentally will kindle. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that people with focal forms of epilepsy tend to secondarily generalize just the way our kindled animals do. By secondarily generalize, you mean? Uh, it means that the epileptic activity starts in one part of the brain and then spreads to the rest. Cool. 
Cool. And it's it stuck the test of time because when did this kindling model develop? Really, the first major publication was 1969 uh, by Graham Goddard. And he was uh, he had gotten his Ph.D. at the psych department at McGill. And so he kept coming back to talk to us about his new model. And that's what got Ron started and Ron got me started. Where now there were major, the development of the kindling model, a lot of it was done by the psych department at McGill. We were all doing kindling for a while. It was the the thing to do in the 1960s, 1970s. Mm -hmm. So would you say at this stage of your career when people mention your name or think about Dr. Burnham, what do they tend to associate you with in the field of epilepsy? And I suppose psychology? as a kindler, as a kindler, an old kindler. We used to call ourselves young kindlers. <laughs> now most of the rest of them have retired. I don't know why. I, I like working, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there is a younger generation of kindlers. Just this uh, this Friday, Cam Teske, who's a young kindler, probably only in his forties, is going to be talking at our fellows meeting. Nice. Looking forward to it. I've had the pleasure of being your student, and that's we, that's the first introduction to epilepsy, and mm-hmm. the first time I, I met you in the fourth year neuropsychopharmacology course, PCL yep. 475. Yep. For all the undergrads who are listening, make sure you enroll. It's a great course. One of my favorites, actually, if not the top two. Fun fact, when I was getting interviewed for the master's degree uh, through IMS, Dr. Cindy Morsehead yeah. was my interviewer. She mentioned that it was her favorite class, too, mm-hmm. as an undergrad. Just a sidetrack. Have you taught a lot of current scientists in yeah. that course? Yeah. You, you mind naming a few? Cindy's one. Let's see, Karen Davis took it. And, uh, well, you took it. Oh, <laughs> I have big shoes to fill. There. You're a young kindler now. Yeah. Well, in that course, you spend about six lectures talking about epilepsy. Yeah. And something great that you do just goes to show you how engaged you are and how mentorship and teaching means to you. For all the undergrads, new students who are coming into the lab, you give this seminar series where you describe important readings in epilepsy and you describe the kindling model. Um, mm-hmm. For our listeners, could you give you know, a few points what they should know about epilepsy? Oh, dear. Uh, that could take a while. Simply to say that, uh, first of all, it's not all cured. When I was a kid, I thought you just took your pills and it was fine, but... In fact, if um, we get about two-thirds of the people with epilepsy under good, good control with medications, but about a third of the people go on having seizures despite the best meds. And uh, if epilepsy is about one in 100, that means about one in 300 people are living with uncontrolled epilepsy. So the first point is it is uh, not all controlled. Uh, the second point about it is that uh, the medications do work, but that they definitely have side effects, uh, and that there are other approaches to epilepsy that we would like to see in the future. Maybe I could come back to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a third point uh, about epilepsy is if you have uncontrolled epilepsy, you have one of the poorest quality of lives of any chronic disease group. Uh, epilepsy goes along with a great deal of depression, anxiety, reproductive disorders, sleep disorders. It's a whole spectrum of problems. And so the problem is not just stopping the seizures, but helping people co- cope with these many comorbidities of epilepsy. Well, if you even seize once a year, you'll never drive legally again. Okay. Uh, you will probably be underemployed or unemployed. Mm-hmm. 
You may well be living at home with your parents. You may be well on welfare. Hey guys, Richie here, and on this installment of Patient Perspective, I have the distinct privilege of welcoming to the show Dr. Melanie Jeffrey, who is an assistant professor at the Center for Indigenous Studies at the University of Toronto and a former student of McIntyre Burnham's. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you. So I was hoping that you could give the listeners a glimpse into your day-to-day experiences as a person battling epilepsy and how that experience has changed for you over time. I have been living with epilepsy and uncontrolled seizures for about 20 years now. It started when I was 19. Uh, I'm now 40. So I've been living with it for a long time. Sometimes I feel like I can have a really normal life. And other times it's very clear that I need to make changes to a work-life balance in order to stay healthy and in order to have fewer seizures. But that can be really challenging as a student and as a person in a, trying to pursue a career. Definitely. And you mentioned that you encountered some of those challenges as you were in graduate school, actually studying animal models of of epilepsy and seizures. That's correct. Um, In graduate school, there's an expectation of many, many hours of work. So in order to finish my PhD, I had to put myself in a position where I, I knew I was going to have more seizures and be traveling more and definitely be very busy. And that was not healthy place to be but at the same time I couldn't finish my program part-time I needed to do it full-time or else I lost funding so there were challenges in terms of the structure of the educational system and doing a PhD compared to my undergrad degrees where I had a lot more support uh, for working at a pace that was healthiest for me Absolutely. When we talk to a lot of uh, individuals studying neuroscience, we hear a lot about the stigma associated with mental health, Um, but we usually hear that in the context of psychiatric disorders. Would you say that that also exists in in epilepsy? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And it's it's very, very common Uh, in women. Depression is more common. Psychosis can also be a thing. um, My youngest brother also had epilepsy and he developed some kind of psychosis and took his own life. There are all kinds of people who, even if their seizures or their epilepsy is being treated well, those psychiatric or psychological issues aren't being treated at all. But it's difficult. Like, you have so much taken away from you. Not having a driver's license, for example, is really limiting for where you live, how you live, uh, where you work, what jobs you could even have. You know, so taking that away is really difficult. But also, I used to feel in the first few years that I had epilepsy like I wasn't going to live that long. So it didn't really matter if I took care of myself or not. But that was also depression developing and me not recognizing that. Would you say that there's a certain at-risk population who is maybe more susceptible to the negative effects of the disease? I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I but I do know like if you're successfully treated, you're for seizures, if your seizures are controlled, you're more likely to have good mental health. Right. If your seizures aren't controlled, but there's all kinds of environmental things going on there too. You feel like your wings have been clipped. Right. Right. You're not allowed to do things that make you that are part of being a whole human being. Right. Recently, I I was told I can't go on any long-haul flights anymore. So I wanted to go to a, if I want to go to a conference, it has to be within a three-hour flight of right. Toronto or else I can't go. Right. And I don't think many people understand that about the disorder. 
Uh, are there any sort of myths or misconceptions, any mm -hmm. other myths or misconceptions that maybe people don't know or that you'd like someone who's listening uh, to know about? Don't put anything in the mouth of a person having a seizure. That's one of the biggest ones. Right. Um, I have met family members missing parts of their fingers um, from sticking something in the mouth of a child having a seizure. One thing where we need to do so much more work is reaching out to different cultural communities. Um, we're missing all kinds of people, Southeast Asia, the Far East, uh, Africa. There are places where epilepsy is incredibly stigmatized. People get killed, they get turned out of communities. Is there anything that kept you going in, in the hardest moments? After my brother died, it was really important for me to keep going. For my family, um, that was something that really affected me moving forward and, and all of a sudden I had to survive. I just had to. Figuring out things that didn't involve medication that could help me was also great because you can feel trapped by the medication. They have side effects. You know, you don't want to take more than one if you don't have to. Mm -hmm. It gave me a lot of trouble with learning and memory. One of the things that was so important to me at U of T was accessibility services. I was overwhelmed by their response, by how much they could help me through so much of my undergrad and graduate degree. They were outstanding. So having that support here at the university was a real high point. Absolutely. Me. I think one of the biggest misconceptions for me was before you introduced it in your course, I always thought of the convulsive types of seizures and epilepsy, never the non-convulsive. Yeah, the non-convulsive types are actually more common. And the one we study in particular in our lab is complex partial, which we're now supposed to call discognitive. Uh, and uh, complex partial is non-convulsive. People that are having complex partial attacks just stop and kind of stare. They seem to be out of contact with their environment for a few seconds or a few minutes. Uh, and uh, they have no memory for the period. And they may actually walk around and do things during this period of un unconsciousness and not remember afterwards. Now, uh, it is a non-convulsive seizure type, but it often secondarily generalizes into tonic-clonic seizures, so that's a problem. And it's also particularly associated with uh, comorbidities like depression, anxiety, and even psychosis. And you mentioned the limbic structure, then kindling. Yeah. So maybe you want to tie uh, back the kindling model with complex partial seizures. Yeah, complex partial seizures often arise in the temporal lobes. And in human beings, the temporal lobes contain the limbic structures. So in rats, if we're trying to model complex partial seizures, we put our uh, indwelling electrodes into the limbic system, very often the amygdala or the hippocampus. Okay, and that produces the behavioral and electro or EEG brain phenomena that you would see in these patients? Yeah, very interestingly, the limbic system has some of the lowest seizure thresholds in the brain. In other words, limbic structures are very easy to uh, cause to break into epileptic activity. And they're also uh, some of the highest, hardest thresholds to raise. 
you can raise seizure threshold in the brainstem or in the cortex much more easily than you can raise seizure threshold in the limbic system with drugs. And why is it important to define seizure thresholds? Well, seizure threshold really, every, every brain has a seizure threshold. Uh, every, everyone will seize given the right uh, circumstances. It's just that people with epilepsy have a chronic low seizure threshold so that spontaneous activities in the brain will occasionally trigger a seizure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, from what I understand, you've always been interested in how seizures occur and how they affect the brain. Yeah. But the way you approached it over the course of your um, research career has changed over time. Maybe yeah. you want to talk about this shift sure. and also the stories that are related to that. Yeah, I started out as a typical uh, basic scientist, academic. Uh, we, the kindling model, we discussed you trigger the focal seizure and gradually over time the focal seizure begins to secondarily generalize to the rest of the brain. Once that occurs, that change is permanent. So if you have a kindled animal that's giving you nice, good convulsive seizures, you can set him aside for six months, bring him back, and he will still give you the generalized seizure. His brain has been changed. And that's really one thing that happened in 1969 when the model came out. Uh, It had been debated about whether or not seizures change your brain, but after the kindling model, it was clear that seizures do change your brain and the changes are very long-lasting or permanent. So the question that everybody began to ask is, what are these changes? And uh, we looked at changes in seizure threshold. We looked at changes in evoked potentials. For quite a while, I was interested in the biochemical and receptor changes in the brain uh, that accompanied kindling. So that was all the basic science work I did in the first maybe 20 years. But at that point, we got quite a large grant from a hospital foundation. Um, This was the Bloorview Children's Hospital, which has since been amalgamated. Uh, But we therefore uh, had money to do our animal research. But as part of the whole thing, I collaborated with the doctors at Bloorview to run a parents group for children of well, for parents with children who had severe epilepsy. And I really had never known how bad it was until I met the families and they educated me and how how tough the kids' lives were. And that pretty well switched me, my focus away from basic science onto uh, applied or translational science. So instead of just looking for kindling-induced changes in the brain, I began to look for drugs that would stop seizures. That's pretty well what I've been doing ever since. And what kind of uh, work has come come out of that transition, those drug development studies? Well, we looked at drugs. Um, we have got one drug in early commercial development, which was based on uh, the ketogenic diet, a diet that stops seizures. We tried to figure out how it worked, and then we tried to change it into a drug therapy. Uh, we've been working on another series um, based on progesterone metabolites. Progesterone, uh, we think of as one of the female hormones, but it has also been known for years that progesterone is anticonvulsant, and uh, it's anticonvulsant in both males and females. And incidentally, it's quite okay to give progesterone to females. It doesn't cause, or to males, doesn't cause any particular problems. That would not be true with estrogen, but it's true with progesterone. 
Uh, and our group and other groups uh, discovered that it was the metabolites of progesterone that are mainly anticonvulsant, not progesterone itself. So we've been working in the lab on a progesterone metabolite as a new anticonvulsant drug. Given your academic contributions to the field, it seems like you've transformed uh, an advocacy for epilepsy sort of into your life's work, although maybe to a lesser degree nowadays. Was there a moment in time when you decided to pursue research uh, in epilepsy, or did it sort of happen organically? Uh, it did. It's actually, I started with doing uh, some advocacy work, doing talks um, for all kinds of different epilepsy organizations or other invited talks. Once I started doing them, people started asking me to do them more, which was great. But I also, I have a kind of epilepsy with catamenial seizure exacerbation. So that means at certain points in my menstrual cycle, I'm more likely to have seizures than others. So Dr. Burnham at the time was studying uh, the anticonvulsant effects of progesterone and its metabolites on seizures. And so that was something of great personal interest to me. And learning about that became very empowering for me, understanding um, the biology involved, but also just not feeling helpless. Even though the seizures aren't fully controlled, knowing more was a lo really empowering. And n now I continue the advocacy work. Uh, I sit on the board of Epilepsy Ontario, and I will do talks, whoever asks me to. A lot of the time, people with epilepsy are, are confused and lonely and just want someone to talk to. Um, so I do that as much as, as I can as well. So I guess I went from advocacy into academics. And from advocacy, I met Dr. Burnham. I did a project course. And then I ended up entering grad studies with him. Quite a journey. And could you tell me uh, a little bit about your work? Uh, the focus of your graduate studies and, and postdoctoral research? Sure. In my graduate degree, I worked on uh, anticonvulsant effects of progesterone and it was its metabolites. So we looked at some side effects of different medications in rats. And so this was consistent of progesterone and two of its metabolites, DHP and allopregnenolone. Um, we didn't find any uh, adverse effects in terms of learning and memory, um, depression, other other models of behavior. Mm -hmm. We moved to mice uh, to do some electrophysiology with the same compounds, and we found quite different effects. We worked in the kindling model, Dr. Burnham's model, and we found that the animals did respond to progesterone and its metabolites it was bioavailable and we did find behavioral effects then which was very interesting different species different experimental methods perhaps um, but when we found this it was so interesting that progesterone itself had anticonvulsant effects that were different from that of its metabolites right so that was in, in terms of figuring out the mechanism of that that it was just Fascinating, but this we're talking about like a hundred to a thousand times the physiological amount of progesterone someone would oh, have in their I see. body. Right, so we're not going to see any progesterone-based treatments anytime no. soon. Although the, there are there are progesterone-based treatments, and some of them are only used in uh, hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and but we're we've seen in the literature there are people using, uh, particularly Dr. Herzog, using um, progesterone lozenges for women with catamenial epilepsy with seizure exacerbation at certain points of their menstrual cycle if they can have progesterone lozenges depending on the type of catamenial seizures they have that can be an effective treatment fascinating mm -hmm. and uh but you weren't always uh interested in, in biomedical research so you've actually had quite a an interesting journey as far as your your uh, studies mm -hmm. i read that you actually you studied uh, you did your undergrad in film production yeah my first undergrad right so what sparked that interest I was always really interested in the creative arts and I had a cousin who was working in the film business and it was something really compelling to me. And in film school, I, I made a short film I'm really, I'm still really proud of, an award-winning film, but you don't make any money making short films. Right. So I worked in the industry as a technician, a camera assistant, but you don't get to work on very many projects that you're proud of necessarily. I decided when SARS hit Toronto, we were at an all-time low for film work. That's right. I went to Sri Lanka for my last job in the film industry, and I decided it was, it was time to get it. I couldn't spend this much of my life working on bad American television. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I needed something more fulfilling. I actually wanted to go back up north towards uh, Perry Sound, towards Nipigon, further north. Mm -hmm. And there doctors were so badly needed there and I really wanted to move back there. Right. So I was heading at first when I came to U of T to do my, my second undergrad in health studies, Aboriginal studies, uh, and ecology and evolutionary biology. That was where I thought I was headed. Right. And that actually ties into your current interest at the Center for Indigenous Studies. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I have inadvertently become the science go-to girl at Aboriginal studies. So developing a science breadth requirement, uh, looking at developing health courses, curriculum development, but also that personal relationship to research is something I can really identify with. Right. I really enjoy working here. It's a it's an accepting place. It's You can have the space to do what you need. No one freaks out if you have a seizure. We're a nice small department too. And I, I've worked here for 10 years now and I continue to really enjoy it. And what are what are some of your research interests and teaching interests? So um, I teach the ethics of Indigenous research, mm -hmm. which as you can imagine are, is quite complex and, and keeps changing, Yes, thankfully. I also teach a course called Ecological Interactions, Introduction to Aboriginal, or sorry, Indigenous and Western Sciences, mm -hmm. and uh, Aboriginal Health Systems. So looking at health but also looking at at science whether ecological sciences and our health and our our whole way of being in our whole environment putting that all in context but also sharing a science science in a way that's not alienating for people that is accessible still you know teach them some of the different aspects of the disciplines how right. to read peer-reviewed articles in a second year course yes but also in terms of connecting with things and it, science doesn't have to be impersonal it really doesn't but there are strengths and limitations of each approach it's important to understand those right and, and what do you think is something that most people don't know about uh research and 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 healthcare in the context of indigenous studies 
I think that one of the things that's missing for, for many people is the concept of uh, the medicine wheel or looking at health from more than just a physical perspective. So um, the teachings that have been shared with me about the medicine wheel is physical, mental, social, and spiritual quarters. And you can't heal a human being only looking at the physical. That's one thing that keeps coming back. Another thing that keeps coming back is that everything is connected, whether that's between your brain and what you're eating, your brain and your body, your brain and your hormones. In science, we used to look at those things in, in very distinct silos, and we weren't talking to each other. So looking at things in an interdisciplinary way is really important, and always remembering that no matter how very precise and focused our graduate work has to be, that we're, we, we still need to interpret that in context and understand that in the context of, of holistic human health, physical, mental, social, and spiritual. Are there any phenomena in epilepsy or even science in general that just continues to puzzle you and you would, well, you would really like those certain questions to be answered? I think everybody is always interested in the question of consciousness and what consciousness is and um, what parts of the brain are conscious. And uh, that's something I've been interested in my whole career, and I'm still interested in it. So I was lucky to uh, kind of push that project in the lab. I think I found the right topic to get yeah. your gear going. I think we're all pretty sure that the posterior neocortex is conscious. And by posterior neocortex, what do you mean? I would mean uh, the essentially parietal, occipital parts of uh, the temporal lobes. So you don't see this, but Dr. Burnham is rubbing the back, yeah. <laughs> the back of his head. The posterior association areas is, is what they're generally called. They're the areas between the sensory, specific sensory cortices in the back of the brain. Um, and what makes you believe that? I think that the most convincing evidence is the split brain phenomenon. This is where experimentally, partly to control epilepsy, they have cut the corpus callosum, which separates the right cortex from the left cortex. And uh, it's quite interesting. You can cut the anterior two-thirds of the corpus callosum, which separates the frontal and prefrontal cortices right from left, and the person still stays one individual. But when you cut the posterior third, which uh, is uniting the really... Um, parietal temporal areas, the posterior association area, then you split into two separate people with two separate minds, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that's why I would place consciousness primarily back there. Okay. And the frontal lobes probably are not conscious, although they're terribly important in manipulating the, con the contents of consciousness. That's right. A very interesting thing, though, and once again, bring me back on topic before long. Uh, just the olfactory system uh, does not seem to report into the neocortex. The olfactory system being the system for smell? The smell system. It, it, um, it seems to report the limbic cortices, not neocortex, but older parts that we would call sub-neocortical. Uh, and I would guess that there is some consciousness in the limbic cortices as well as in the neocortical areas. Okay. 
Well, I'm going to get you back on topic now. Okay. <laughs> Among other projects you're handling in the lab, you serve as co-director of the Eplink Research Program, which is a province-wide research program funded by the Ontario Brain Institute. No. Maybe you can tell us about how that all happened. And I know it's a big deal, a lot mm-hmm. of great pro- projects coming out of that. And I'm fortunate enough to start my degree when things were really moving. So I got got to be part of the workshops and seeing how things develop. But maybe you could describe, you know, what this project means to you and to everyone who's involved and how it's been like just directing it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the project was really founded by Don Stuss, who is a brain researcher at the Rotman Institute, and Joe Rotman. Uh, and uh, Don thought that there was a great deal of neuroscience talent in Ontario, and there is, and he thought that he should bring it all together. And so he got the uh, Ontario government to found the Ontario Brain Institute, which has been funded both by uh, the health minister and by the industrial minister. Because the idea was from the beginning that it would not be a pure science research institute, but that it would try to be translational. In other words, to make discoveries that would impact actual medical care. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also that it should build up the biotech industry. Because if you want to take um, discoveries from bench to the bedside, the biotech industry is a crucial step in, in moving from the laboratory into the healthcare system. Uh, so we heard that they were taking applications, and uh, Jorge Berneo and I put in an application for epilepsy. This would be, I guess, 2011, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were chosen as one of the three original programs. Uh, you, since then, were you, it were you excited five. when you got that email? Oh yeah, I was right over there in the house when I got the phone call, and I was excited. Oh, it was a phone call. I wish yeah. they did that. Don Stuss called me up and said, uh, "We've approved you." <laughs> just like that just like that and what was your response wow I was happy <laughs> uh, having having said that um, since then uh, I knew that the money would come with a lot of uh, bureaucratic obligations which we do and they're still not the favorite part of the job but the favorite part of the job is that we can provide some resources to maybe 30, 30 35 researchers in Ontario uh, to work on many aspects of epilepsy therapy. And it's particularly important because epilepsy has always been underfunded. Uh, and why it, do you think that's the case? I think it's not an attractive disease. People don't think they are going to get it. They don't think their family members will get it and just don't want to talk about it. Even people who are well-controlled on drugs generally don't talk about their epilepsy. So it's way underfunded compared to some other more uh, media, media-attractive diseases. By not wanting to talk about it, would it be the, assist, the stigma sorry, associated with the disease? For sure. Uh, for sure. And people, particularly if they have public seizures, have to live with a lot of stigma and a lot of just hostility from the general public. Mm-hmm. And you... You mentioned that there's a translational component to this Eplink uh, program. Could you um, highlight some of the themes? Yeah, our, our themes are all really centered around therapy because we are translational. We're trying to modify medical care. Uh, the themes we can really discuss in terms of a patient's experience. If a patient is diagnosed with epilepsy, the first therapy they will have is drug therapy. That's always done first. And... 
is a, I said that can control about two-thirds of the people. Uh, if the drug therapy is not successful, and generally speaking, if you have failed two appropriate drugs, you probably will not be responding to any of the other drugs. After you've failed a couple of good ones, your chances of drug control are very poor. Uh, so then they look at other things. And the next thing they look at is uh, seizure surgery. If you have epilepsy that starts at a particular part of the brain, uh, which we'd call the epileptic focus or the seizure onset zone, uh, it's possible they can remove that surgically. And uh, that is a very underused form of therapy. Uh, and we are hoping that it'll be used more often and very successfully. What will make it be used more often? Uh, well, partly we're doing knowledge translation and, and public education. Uh, the new guidelines, they are, there are new provincial guidelines for epilepsy care in Ontario, and the basic take-home message of those guidelines is if you have failed two anticonvulsant drugs, you should be referred for surgery. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that very seldom happens. Doctors will go on treating patients for 20 or 30 years unsuccessfully with one anticonvulsant after another, when if they were referred for surgery, it's possible they could be cured. Uh, surgery is the only cure for epilepsy that we currently when have. When you can identify the focus. You have to be able to identify the focus. Now, if there is no focus, in, in some epileptic uh, patients there does not seem to be any identifiable focus, then the third type of therapy would be uh, diet therapy. So we're not only working on drug therapy and surgical therapy, we're also working on diet therapy. In terms of therapies that may be important in 10 or 20 years, uh, we are working on brain stimulation to stop mm -hmm. seizures. This is something that's been tried in the States and it's being tried in, in Toronto as well. It's, uh, it's very Star Wars. <laughs> it's a situation where the patient has a tiny chip implanted in the brain, which is always there. The chip is a tiny computer. It's monitoring the brain waves and communicating to a computer. And when the computer recognizes that a seizure is about to start, the chip then stimulates the brain with a very low-level electrical current to try to abort the seizure. It works in animals, and we believe it's going to work in people. That's where the biotech kind of collaboration is One of our spin-off, we have several spin-offs companies from, uh, from Uplink and Avertis is the biotech spin-off for brain stimulation. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition, we are looking at the genetics of epilepsy. There are uh, strong genetic factors in many epilepsies. Uh, and they've been collecting the epilepsy genes for some years now, so we have some knowledge of which genes are likely to lead to a low seizure threshold and spontaneous seizures. But with new uh, CRISPR caspase techniques and with new gene therapy techniques, it's possible that we can modify these, gene these genes that predispose a person to epilepsy. Uh, and I think that's going to be the the very exciting thing that's going to happen in the next 10 years. I, I used to think it was 30 years away, but now I'm thinking it's maybe 10 years away. They're already trying gene modification on people in China. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's not so far. Uh, we 
most cases of epilepsy are not the result of a single bad gene. They're mostly the result of a collection of genes. But it's possible that if we can modify even one or two of those genes in the collection, that we could raise the person's seizure threshold and they would stop seizing. They wouldn't have to take drugs or surgery or diet uh, or even brain stimulation. So I think that's that's very, very exciting avenue. The genetic avenue, I think, is, is very, very exciting. Uh, those are five of our themes. Our sixth theme is simply uh, work on the comorbidities. Um, we have very strong input not only from our industrial advisors but also from our community advisors, people who are living with epilepsy or who are uh, in the nonprofit epilepsy associations. And uh, they've told us that it's very fine that we want to stop seizures, but in the meantime, we need to do something about the comorbidities. So uh, we now are looking at studies that will, first of all, uh, engage with a patient who's just been diagnosed and educate him or her about epilepsy and about epilepsy care, about the avenues that he or she can use and also about the resources that are out there for people with, with new-onset seizures. In addition, we're working on programs to try to help with the memory problems and the emotional problems. A lot of people with epilepsy say the seizures aren't the worst part. It's the memory problems, that they have trouble with memory. And uh, so we're working on programs that could be delivered over the phone which ought to uh, try to strive to improve memory in people living with seizures. In addition, uh, there are people who are very depressed or anxious, and depression and anxiety often go together. And uh, we're working on programs, once again, that can be delivered over the phone that might help uh, provide support and therapy for people living with epilepsy and depression slash anxiety. The reason that it's important to do all of this over the phone is simply people with uncontrolled seizures can't drive, mm-hmm. uh, and often they're living in rural areas where even transportation to get into a, an urban center is very hard. So mm-hmm. we'd really like to see this all delivered really uh, by computer, by internet, by phone, so it could be done all over the province. Going back to the question with what contributes to the longevity, you could see it because you know, you're always learning, and I'm sure you're describing it a lot better than maybe it's as your role as co-director, you should know all these things, but um, I'm sure that keeps you excited, keeps you going by being able to be at the forefront of all this new, exciting research. It, it It's a lot of fun. It, it really is interesting. Now, one of the topics we alluded to earlier, mm-hmm. uh, which is a focus in the lab, is um, the treatment of patients with drug-resistant epilepsy using medical marijuana, and you're leading one of the first clinical trials. Well, it's it's um, it's one of the first adult trials in Canada. Uh, medical marijuana, well, it's been known for many thousands of years mm-hmm. that cannabis marijuana did many many medical things, and one of them was to stop seizures. And that's what are the other things. Oh, it uh, relieves pain, Mm -hmm. it relieves anxiety, encourages appetite, uh, is uh, anti-immune. They're just a very long list of things that that the cannabis plant does. Uh, More recently, it was sorted out that there are at least two major extracts 
Now, there are probably a hundred extracts, but there are two major ones. Uh, and that one of them, cannabidiol, doesn't make you high. Uh, the two extracts are, are tetrahydrocannabidiol, THC, which does make you high, and cannabidiol, CBD, which doesn't make you high. So, of course, there's been a really great interest in the medical possibilities of cannabidiol because it doesn't space you out. And uh, in terms of epilepsy, they were working very, uh, they were working uh, really hard on it uh, in the 1970s, and they were getting very good animal data. And actually, they did a clinical study in 1980 showing that it worked, and then all the research stopped. And I think it's because the federal government in the States was cracking down on drugs. So it really, medical marijuana and particularly cannabidiol for epilepsy was rediscovered in the 90s because the parents wanted it and had heard that it worked. And so it's come back. Um, there are drug companies very interested in it. Uh, and they've, Dr. Oren Davinsky's just run a big uh, clinical trial in children in the States with positive results. And uh, there are several uh, pediatric trials going on in Canada now, and we're doing uh, one in adults. And you mentioned that it's really the parents and the patients who are advocating for this. And what has that been like for you as a researcher? Is it accelerating this process? The fact that the, the media has been reporting that it works uh, has been very important in bringing it back. Uh, and I think that's probably partly why it was legalized in Colorado eventually and then Washington State. Mm -hmm. And now it's probably going to be legalized in all of Canada. Now, that's partly because people want to use it for recreational uses. But I think it's also been partly because it has some really, really good medical uses. And with cannabidiol in particular, it not only seems to be anti-seizure, which is our major interest, but it also would treat the comorbidities of epilepsy. It is anti-anxiety, at least there's some evidence that it's anti-depression, uh, and there's some evidence that it is anti-psychotic as well. And uh, depression, anxiety, and in some cases psychosis go along with epilepsy, so it's possible that a drug that would stop the seizures would also stop the comorbidities, and I think that's very exciting. But you would never call it a wonder drug. You'd be careful to say that. No. And uh, the reports that have come out from families where a child with terrible epilepsy became seizure-free overnight, those are real instances I've talked to the parents, but that's not the average experience. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the average experience? In Davinsky's trial, there was better seizure control. A majority of patients began to, their seizure frequency dropped from whatever it was to half of whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But only a very small percentage of children became seizure-free. Okay. Well, how do your colleagues feel about this project? Are they very supportive of it? or? I, my colleagues that are... Um, my colleagues that know about epilepsy are all very supportive of it. The neurologists specialized in epilepsy have been told about this by their patients, and uh, are, many of them are convinced that it, it works. Uh, the Do they know how it works? No, no. We really have no idea how cannabidiol works. It's interesting. THC has been really understood quite well for some years, but cannabidiol works on a number of different receptors in the brain. 
Uh, and it's not clear which of those receptors has causes it to have anticonvulsant effects. Okay. But uh, the medical community, uh, unlike the epilepsy doctors, I think are still fairly hesitant about cannabidiol, and in part because there have been so many exaggerated claims made about it without animal or clinical data. So I think it's up to us to provide the animal and clinical data that's mm-hmm. going to convince everyone. Okay. And going back, to, I, I still remember this topic in your class when we were talking about um, the opioids and the and there was this there's this little this just paper reading that you assigned to us when the physician was imploring that you know stop demonizing this treatment like for chronic pain and it works you just have to pay attention to the treatment schedule well is it something like is the, it, would it be similar to something like that yeah these are very uh, there's always been a battle uh, over the opioids with pain doctors wanting to use them, other doctors saying, no, you'll turn them into addicts. Um, I wish that we could just look at opioids as a pain treatment, which has pluses and minuses and should be used carefully, but it's not monstrous. And the press are mingling all the reports of medical opioid use with recreational opioid use and with designer drugs, and the, the whole thing is very confused. Uh, we have something similar with the cannabinoids at this point. Uh, we've got to get over the fact that they are recreational drugs, that they have been abused by some people in the past, but they have real medical uses that we have to focus on. And do you think people are learning the lessons from that opioid discussion, the discourse from that? I hope so, but I think in general the cannabinoids are regarded as more benign drugs than the opioids, so I think that we will have an easier time. Theoretically, in less than a year, they're going to be legal in Canada. Okay, cool, cool. Well, just switching up, we'll get to our last set of questions, one of my favorite topics, and I'll definitely share some of my experiences. It's talking about your supervisory style. So how would you describe your philosophy in super, supervising students, your style, and even if you can describe how it got informed that way or developed that way? I would describe myself, first of all, I would say I like students. I love working with students, and I consider it one of the best parts of my job. And uh, when new students come into the lab, I'm always excited to figure out what they're going to be like. Uh, But my style, I would say, is fairly non-directive. First of all, that was the McGill psych department. They encouraged us to think for ourselves and not Mm -hmm. just to be given projects by our supervisor. Uh, But the second thing to say is I find students have great ideas, and uh, I just like to let them work on those ideas, and they often take me in directions that I would not have expected, like your thesis. I never saw the outcome that you've got. Yeah, I did well, not I mean, neither see that did coming I. at all. And, and that, that's very exciting. I mean, the, the boring part of my job is composing examinations, which bores me to tears, <laughs> uh, and doing all the paperwork related to the funding. And, and, but the fun part is working with students and doing the experiments, and that, that's really great. Um, so I try not to be too directive with students. I try to let them uh, 
paddle their own canoe as much as possible. And I guess what I'd say to them as I look at students is the superstars of the future, and I'm kind of like the coach that helps them get started. Well, you're you're a great coach. I think about this all the time because I do get asked, you know, how how is Mac, how is Dr. Burnham? You encourage growth. You encourage them to bring the ideas, as you were saying. And I think for me that was something that I didn't have in the past with former supervisors, which made it super exciting to be part of this lab because even coming to you and saying, I like what's going on in the lab, but I kind of want to do this instead. How do you feel about that? And you didn't even say no. You said, well, let's talk about it. Um, let's define it some more. And, and here we are with some cool outcomes, unexpected for the both of us. So one thing I would say is that you really encourage growth and encourage us to learn um, for ourselves. And second part, I would say you mentioned how you love students and not some raw talk because you do, because you're very engaged. And um, I'm fortunate enough, and I know the students in the lab are fortunate enough that we get weekly meetings with you, sometimes even bi-weekly. And what that allowed me for someone who loves working or puts in a lot of time and effort into what I'm committed to, progression like weekly. So I know, okay, I'm doing this right. I'm not doing this right. I can get this corrected by Thursday and, uh, or the next week. And why that's so important for someone like me and other students who really want to just you know, get things going it helps us just to keep at a certain pace and consistent. And you're always very, very, very great with the feedback. Um, so that would be that. And then lastly, I would describe you as someone who's very accommodating and very, very supportive. And um, so I never feel uncomfortable sharing something with you. And um, whenever I'm having a tough time getting through different sections or experiments, you're very understanding. You just guide me through those ups and the downs. So it's the trifecta, you have a great package, so I've been happy to be your student. And for those students coming, you've got a great supervisor ahead of you. Now that they're coming into the lab, what do you think you've touched upon your style? What do you think, as a student perspective, some of the characteristics that your superstars um, have shared over the years, and how can they make the most out of um, their experience in grad school and also just being in the lab? Uh, I think enthusiasm. Uh, I I think the students that benefit from graduate school are the students that like it, and not everybody does. Uh, And uh, part of it is getting into something that you do like. And let me just tell a story about a student many years ago. Uh, He's now a neurologist in London, Ontario, but uh, he was a summer student with us, and we put him on to some really tough animal stuff and he flourished and did great and he came back the following summer and this was 70s and so the binding direct binding assay was the latest thing so what are binding assays binding assays are test two studies where you try to look at the interaction of a drug with its receptor but always in the test tube so it's test tube test tube Mm -hmm. And came back to me after a week or two and said, I'm going to have to quit if you make me do this anymore. (laughs) Uh, Because he hated that. He loved working with animals, but he hated working with test tubes. Some students love working with people and hate working with animals. It's just a question of finding out what turns you on and, and sticking with that. One of the things you did say was, you know, when you're starting graduate school, especially as a master's, um, just think about whether or not you're interested in really learning a technique or if you are interested in a particular project. 
and um and i that was great because with the masters it's two years it goes by really fast so you can really grow with the technique and there's a lot of new techniques coming out there optogenetics which is something that i was excited about a lot of the genetic tools or the project if something really excites you about the project um take that somewhere so i thought that was just going back to that point the model is important what you like to work on but also if it's the project itself going back to to what you said what does it mean for you to have a personal relationship with your research it means that i'm looking into a question that matters to me that matters to someone with seizures who's living with seizures and epilepsy it uh, a lot of the time you can get stuck on a certain path in graduate work that is more the agenda of your principal investigator than it is of something that you're interested in and that's absolutely the real, absolutely <laughs> the reality that's the truth. Of graduate studies that's right? right that's right so i found a really really great fit with dr burnham which is wonderful but in terms of making that personal connection i think it, it can really ground you and and keep you focused on what's important so one of the things working with epilepsy ontario um, when we had some money from an endowment to, for research, one of the things we looked at, you know, should we work with the OBI? Should we fund this project or that project? And I said, look, we need to do something that really connects more with patients. A lot of this work is so uh, detailed and neuroscience is so complex. It's hard to communicate with people. Let's do something that really resonates with people with epilepsy because that's what we are supposed to be doing. Right. So it's all important. I think it keeps me grounded. I guess the takeaway then is research is great, discovery is great, uh, improving care is also great, but for budding academics, budding students, it's also more important to, to find a question that they are personally interested in answering and in studying and using that to gear their research. Right, and, and so that involves finding and speaking with PIs before you're accepted to grad school, right? So you, I, I did a project course with Dr. Burnham um, in my fourth year of my undergrad, and, and that was what led me there. But for a lot of people, the, the more you have independence, but also support, you need to balance that. Then you can really choose to, to follow your own direction, knowing that it may change, that as you learn things, you need to keep an open mind. So you may go into grad school with a certain hypothesis, but you have to be open-minded enough to bring in what you've learned and bring in the current literature so that you're not just going at it blind. You're not going at it with a huge bias. You need to open your eyes to what the results could mean. There you have it. Dr. Jeffrey, it's been a pleasure. Nice speaking with you, Richie. We wish you the best. Thank you. Well, one question I've always wanted to ask is, you are very open to ideas, and um, and that's always amazed me. Sometimes I ask myself, you know, why did he let me go to France for six months? You know, and and it's been, and I'm so appreciative of it because it's allowed me to experience grad school a whole different way. And in my mind, I rationalize maybe he sees something he. He's not really just paying attention to the grad school, but just my professional growth, my personal growth, because I want to ask you just personally, I've come to you for a lot of things. I've, I've, I spent three weeks away in California, too. I've uh, the six months in France, just research related, but also selfishly, I would do it 
see if it's something that you know I could gravitate towards I can learn from something else but why were you always so willing to just say yes trying to train you guys not as technicians but as scientists as thinkers as people um, so going to France was good for you yeah it slowed down your masters but you you're coming in fine yeah why not well that's true no I did and I think it's it was a great experience for me because well, it turns out a lot of the work that I did there is going to be great for my thesis. And it's helped out with our discussion. When yeah, we you learned down. a lot. Yeah. And then it just goes from there, applying to scholarships, and you're always very willing. And one thing you don't know is one of your reference letters through mm-hmm. Savoy when I was renewing it the mm-hmm. second time came into my Dropbox. I think they accidentally did that. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to share this because I look at it, you know, from you know, time to time whenever mm-hmm. I need some inspiration or I'm stuck and I'm like you know what got to make this man proud because he's done so much because you said some very nice things that just keeps me going and ultimately I think for any student in the lab um, who wants to make the most of it is just take advantage of how gracious and generous you are with your time Um, I know I'm wrapping up my thesis but uh, it's been a blast thank you for these kind words and get back to work on your thesis (laughs) (laughs) all right that's it for today take care bye guys bye bye Broad Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Conversare che persona santa, ma detto figlio mio, la sala sta, la sala sta. Cuore, cuore.